As a boy growing up in East London and then in Essex, Paul Hannaford was just like any child, going round dreaming of a future playing for West Ham United. But by the time he got to year nine at school, that's when his life started to spiral out of control. It was at that young age he tumbled headfirst into a life of crime, drug addiction and gang violence. After being kicked out of numerous schools and running riot in a pupil referral unit, Paul and a number of his friends formed a gang. They all had one thing in common. They liked chaos. At the age of 21, Paul had a number of criminal convictions, had been stabbed seven times, one almost fatally, and he had risen to become one of the gang leaders. He was being driven around in luxury cars, wore a Rolex, and on the face of it, he was living the high life. Until he tried heroin one night. After testing that drug out for the first time, Paul became addicted and he essentially wasted away, living a lonely existence in crack dens with other addicts. He was cast aside by his gang and his health deteriorated massively as he injected himself all over his body on a daily basis. He was wanted by the police because of continued criminal activity and eventually one day he handed himself in which ultimately saved his life. In fact, his final prison sentence was spent handcuffed to a bed at Chelmsford's Broomfield Hospital as medics battled to save his legs, which he was on the verge of having to have amputated because of the heroin and the cocaine he'd injected into himself. Miraculously, through a combination of maggots and the doctor's hard work, his legs were saved, but even to this day, Paul's leg wounds are open and he has to dress them every single morning, a constant reminder of his past life. Now Paul is 11 years clean, and after everything he has been through, he has now turned his hand to educating and advising children and inmates across the country. With gang and drug crime on the up, he is using his own experiences to warn them just what the consequences are. A word of warning that some of the content in this episode is graphic, it's harsh, and it's brutal, so listener discretion is advised. But that's how this episode is intended to be. As you'll find out from Paul, drug addiction and gang crime carry severe consequences. Brought to you by Essex Live, this is Humans of Chelmsford, and this is Paul Hannaford's story. Thanks so much, Paul, for coming on to our podcast and telling us all about your incredible story. You're welcome. And, and we'll start, I suppose, with, with what you were like as a child first, because you grew up in East London and that later in Essex with dreams of playing for West Ham. Does that effectively sum you up as a child, like this, this football-mad kid? You know, I was never probably good enough to play professional football, but that was, as a 10-year-old little boy, obsessed. You know, any opportunity to put a football kit on and play football was, 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 you know, every day. I joined a football team, I started playing, you know, and I just obsessed with football. Loved exactly. it. Like most kids today, I guess. So when you get to year nine, so I presume you were age, what, 13, 14 at yeah. that point? That's when things started to change, namely smoking weed. Yeah. Why did things suddenly spiral out of control from then on? 
I'm not sure really. I mean, I was, you know, there was there was quite a few people smoking it, I guess, in my year. But I suppose I just liked it a bit more than others, and it weren't, you know, become weekly. Then it become daily. Then I couldn't be bothered to go football practice. I'd rather go to the park instead and get stoned. So eventually, I got chucked out my football team. My behaviour at school was horrendous. Or you know, absconding, robbing stuff from school. So I suppose within the space of about a year, I've been chucked out of three schools in my football team. So another school then really were interested in taking me on because I was just too much trouble. So the only thing was, alternatively, was to go to a pupil referral unit. And to be honest with you, when I got there, I loved it. There was no boundaries. The teachers were clueless and we did what we want. Who, who was it that kind of introduced you to weed in the first place? Was it a group of friends? I'm not too sure, really. I suppose it was a couple of boys in the year or the year above me were smoking away from school one day. You know, you do out of school. You don't rush home, do you? You hang about the kids on the street for a little bit. And I see him smoking it, and uh, curiosity, really. Is, is that what it comes down That's to? It's just kind of there's this thing that you don't know. What no, the not at all. Are. I suppose the kids that were smoking it were part of the in crowd, and I suppose I wanted to be part of the in crowd. Uh, you mentioned the pupil referral unit there. Is that kind of the last resort for yeah, you for, to schooling, get an education? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's alternative, isn't it? There's no other alternative than pupil referral unit. And then I know pupil referral unit today try and get kids back in mainstream, but. I didn't want to go back to school. Mm-hmm. In fact, I didn't want to go. I hated school after that. And obviously, in the pupil for unit, I met a group of boys just like me. Yeah, all loved a little bit of chaos, all loved getting stoned, and uh, end up becoming a gang. Was any help or advice given to you at that time to sort of steer you another way? Not really. Not really, no one. There's just nothing there. No, I got, I got, all I got rammed down my throat for years was double maths, English, PE and science. And you just had no interest in that whatsoever? Once I'd got chucked out of school, or once I started smoking cannabis, my only interest was crime and drugs. So you mentioned those guys that you met at the PRU. Did they form that first gang that you were part of? Yeah, I think at first, you know, we, we were a group of about 15, then it whittled down to about 12, 10. But the gang rules were, I mean, we had a gang leader at the time, um, carry a knife. And then once we'd been chucked out of the pupil referral unit after about eight, nine months, I'm on the streets now. I should be, like, you know, year 10 or 11. I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm out committing crime every day to get money to get weed. And then weed, obviously, you know, turn into other drugs like ecstasy, cocaine, lots of LSD, alcohol every day. You know, it costs money. You know, we had no jobs, so we'd out going out doing, uh, you know, robbing from shops and that, really. Um, then I started picking up convictions. I think by the time I got to the age of 15, I'd been, I had about 15 convictions and I'd done three young offenders. So, you know, it was like I was on the path of, uh, of nothing positive. But at the time, I couldn't see that because there was no real consequence. I didn't mind going to prison for a few months. So in, terms of, in terms of the gang, why did you feel it was important to be part of that gang? Because, because, because it was exciting. You know, we was out meeting each other every day, going out, enjoying life. You know, waking up what time I wanted, going to bed what time I wanted, always having money, always having protection. You know, it's become kind of like a band of brothers, kind that of hundred percent. Mm-hmm. You know, you trust each other. You know, you. Uh, you know, I don't think you you go out as ten every day. You know, but you do meet up with most of your gang through the week, and you do have a favorite. You have a few favorite gang members. You know, and then as I got older, I got pretty big and strong. And the next thing I know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sort of 18 stone drinking in pubs. I've got a Rolex watch, three-bedroom house, credit card fraud. 
and uh, I'm sort of like the gang leader or one of them exactly and um, now I'm drinking now in pubs full of gangsters I drink in pubs like in Essex and the guys will be pulling up in their Bentleys and Range Rovers and uh, I'm sitting here with rounds of drinks with them at a table selling them stuff that I've robbed and that and, it, uh, and, I, and I, fas- I was fascinated with them I mean real real villains you know like proper, proper hard men that are multi-millionaires that had all got their money from crime and I aspire to that and I thought I was going to live like it is that, was that part of it where you saw people, say, your rich bankers, for example, yeah. who had that wealth, and that's the way you see, from your point of view, you can achieve that level of wealth? Well, because, yeah, because I'm around it. I don't know nothing else. You know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I've, uh, I'm not in this middle-class bubble. I'm living in an environment of, of uh, you know, 18-year-old boy sitting there with men in their 40s and 50s that are multi-billionaires that are proper, you know, gangsters, and I'm fascinated with them. They took me under their wing. All right, my gang is still coming in, and, and then as things progressed, you know, I'm earning more money annually. I'm getting nicer things, and um, and that was it, really. You know, I'm 21, I'm 18 stone, I'm, you know, I've got some lovely things right around me, and I thought that was going to be it. But, you know, things changed mm-hmm. through, um, through taking heroin one night. You know, never thought I would. Yeah, I see heroin addicts, right? Let me tell you, right? I used to look at them when I was young in a gang and I used to, I used to judge them terribly. They were rotten, filthy, dirty, rotten teeth. You know, you knew they injected themselves. They beg outside shops. And I used to look, you know, I'm not like that. You know, I'm immaculate. You know, I used to, I used to have a good set of hair. I had the best teeth. I had, you know, I used to shower twice a day. I, I, you know, I had the Rolex watch. I had, all the, I had all the trappings of that wannabe gangster thing. And I used to look at these heroin addicts and think, scumbags. But sadly, you know, I become a scumbag. It was, it was, it was curiosity again, <laughs> again at the end of the day. Going to a party one night and it was there and the guy pulled it out and I said no and I got drunk and I tried it and uh, sadly I liked it. And, uh, you know, that night I thought I was in heaven when I took it. But little I realised it was actually the gates to hell. Because exactly. 12 months later, I'm no longer 18 stone. I'd lost... I don't know, three, four stone. Stopped eating, stopped brushing my teeth, sold my Rolex, my gang don't have nothing to do with me. And the next thing I know, I'm uh, living in crack dens with heroin addicts. People I'd never met in my life, but it didn't matter. I was in this environment where you just go to these drug dens and there's all strangers there and all injecting drugs and you sit with them morning, noon and night. Mm-hmm. I'm, just, I'm, I'm curious by this aspect, because like, you'd obviously taken your fair share of drugs before that. Yeah. And what effect? do they have on your brain and what effect does heroin have on your brain that's totally It's a difficult different? thing to say really it's one it's one of them drugs where you just um, it just takes you to this place where you've got no worry you've got no care and when I mean by no care you don't care about anything or anybody because from there I didn't care about my mum I didn't care about my girlfriend I didn't care about anything I didn't care about my health I didn't care about washing I stopped eating so this bit of brown powder that, that, that I was taking every day completely consumed my life to the fact where it was you know it was, I, was, I, was, I was I was you know it, it, it was just powerful you know for this little bit of brown powder totally controlled consumed my life to the fact where I was going weeks without showering or bathing weeks without brushing my teeth you know months without changing my clothes that's a pretty powerful thing the only reason I should change my clothes because the weight I was losing tried to get new clothes I was losing weight rapidly and uh, and that was it really and it got to the point then I'm getting in debt with dealers and you know one night I remember I got in a fight and a debt bit of debt and a guy stabbed me and he killed me 
And then, you know, it was just a slow progression of prisons, hospitals, crack dens. Prison, hospital, crack den. And then my legs for injecting drugs. I started taking crack as well. And you meant to smoke crack, but I started injecting it. And all my veins broke down. I had needles snapping off my body. I started injecting my penis, my feet, my groin. And then what happened was I got blood clots. And my legs were fat. You know, my breast of my body was skinny, but my legs had got fat. And I started to pick scabs. And eventually, you could see all bone through the, through the holes in my legs. Mm-hmm. And they stunk of rotten flesh. And I used to put nappies on them to soak up all the blood that coming out of them every day. Well, it got to this point where I'm running out of shops every day, getting my money, all the department stores, House of Fraser, Harris Selfridges. I was nicking about two grand's worth of stuff a day. I sell it for 500. So I had loads of people buying it off of me. That was only vast amounts of money out of me. And so now I'm, you know, I'm having about three grand a week I'm spending on crack and heroin. But my legs got to the point where I couldn't walk. So I couldn't get to the shops. But I still needed drugs. Now it's impossible to get drugs with no money. So years ago when we was a gang, we had a couple of guns. And I buried one of them years ago behind a fish and chip shop near my mum's house. I went around, dug it up, but it was still there. I've been there for years, a bit rusty. And I started robbing the dealers. But it's only something drug dealers you can rob. So, you know, it got to the point where the dealers were like, you know, weren't too happy with me. And they were like, you know, some were looking for me and blah, and, and, and my legs hanging up. And I was wanted by the police. And to be honest with you, years ago, because of my past, growing up, you know, being a gang, I hated the police. Why? Because they were doing their job and arresting me. And I've done some horrific stuff to myself in police cells. You know, I just run myself in poo and, you know, I've self-armed in police cells with razors and, you know, just to get out and use drugs. So the police don't like me. I don't like them. I'm chaos when I go there. You know, I'm, I'm always causing ag. And I remember I was always wanted by the police. And it got to the point where I'd rob some dealers one day. The stuff I'd robbed, I'd overdose, ambulance. I woke up, they started my heart with a defib. They rushed me into hospital, give me a blood test. I had blood poisoning, septicemia, pneumonia. And the doctor went to me, you know, you've got a couple of days to live. We're going to chop your left leg off. Stay in the hospital. I'll save your life. And I left the hospital to go and get the drugs that I'd robbed. Anyway, cut a long story short. It was die in a few days from the blood poisoning and the pneumonia. Or give myself up to the uh, Metropolitan Police. And I walked into my local police station. Where I was wanted. And I'd done all that stuff to myself. You know, smell myself in poo and all that. And I, and, and I give myself up. I broke down. I was beaten. I'd literally come to the end of 23 years worth of brutal drug abuse, knife crime, gun crime and gangs, to the fact where I knew I had to give myself up. Was that, but prior to you giving yourself up, is it, is it an incredibly lonely existence, that? And is that what kind of prompted Addiction you is completely to lonely. Mm. I could go, you know, when I used to get my drugs right, I used to, you know, I'd find a crack den, there's crack dens everywhere. But before I went to the crack den, I'm, I'm withdrawing. You know, I've been out robbing all day, get my money. I, by the time the drug dealer turns up, I'm really withdrawing from heroin. I need a quick fix. So I rush off to the nearest public toilet, normally McDonald's or Kentucky. And you know you get a disabled toilet in most like, you know, coffee shops or restaurants. And I'd sit in the, 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 the disabled toilet for two hours, injecting, just sitting on the floor. And I'd be comfortable there. I'd be okay. Sitting on the floor in a public toilet for two hours, injecting. And then they'd be knocking on the door because the place would be shutting. You know, we'd be cleaning up. And then I'd find a local crack there and again spend the night there, wake up on someone's sofa, you know, with, 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 with rotten underpants on and, you know, blood clots and stinky legs. And you wake up in the morning crack dens and the first thing that used to wake me up would be pain. Because of holes in my legs, the morphine had worn off because that's what heroin is, a painkiller. The pain would be horrendous. Then the smell, the whole flat would smell of rotten flesh. But that don't matter. I'm not eating for three days. That doesn't matter. 
what matters is I get up out of that crack den and go and find money for a fix. In terms of your thinking process, day by day, are you just thinking, how can I money get drugs, the next Money fix? drugs, money drugs, money yeah. what, drugs. What, 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 where am I not known? What shop am I not barred from? What cab driver can I knock today? Because I used to get cabs everywhere. You know, I used to get cabs everywhere. And I, I used to pay most of them, but some of them I couldn't pay because obviously when we got back to sell the stuff, I had to wait a while and a cab driver would say, well, I can't hang about. I'd say, I'll give you money later, but I wouldn't give it to him. I spent it on drugs. So, you know, I had a cab bill of about £700 a week. Just cabs drive me everywhere. So, you know, I was a... Uh, it was just becoming hard work to get money, you know, in the end. And that's eventually, obviously, my legs broke down and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it got to the point where I, when I walked into that police station, they were quite shocked. You know, they looked and they thought, wow, you know, this guy, you know, they, they, everyone thought I was this big, tough guy, gang leader, turned crackhead. You know, but I was just a little boy. That's all I was. You know, I lied in that police station that day, cried, and I was just this little boy that lost my way years ago. And, you know, and, and they arrested me, took me back to the hospital, kept me for a few days, took me to court in a wheelchair and they got rid of the infection but the leg got really bad I couldn't walk so they borrowed a wheelchair and they wheeled me into the court and the judge sent me straight to prison and when I got to the prison the doctor went we, 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 you, you can't come in our prison we can't chop your leg off you know so they sent me to an outside hospital to have it cut off but then I went to have maggots put in them they were about to chop my leg off and the doctor went hold on a minute before I cut it off I'm going to put maggots in your legs and they put loads of maggots in my legs and uh, it saved them I was handcuffed to the bed for three months, you know, and uh, and the nurses did a fantastic job. You know, the doctors there did a fantastic job. They were really good to me. And um, and that was in Broomfields in Chelmsford, not far from here. And uh, I remember they took the handcuffs off and they went, you're free, you, you know, you're not a prison no more. I served my time there. And I was like, well, I've got nowhere to go. And they said, well, you're not a problem no more. Then the nurse came and went, Paul, it's sadly, you've got to go now. As much as, you know, we, we want you to get better, we need the bed for another patient. So lucky enough, I, you know, no one came to visit me. And it was like, you know, my family and that who I'd stole off of and put through hell. Signed up in treatment in a rehab in Somerset. And I went up there, you know, a few years ago, 11 years ago, and I got better. You know, the rest of my gang, though, weren't so lucky. Out of all my gang members, you know, between 10 and 12, I know three of them died from heroin after me. It took a few years. Four got mental health, severe, because of addiction. They're living outside shops, some of them, they're begging with no teeth just normal kids like me one of them stabbed a guy in a pub killed him still in prison today and there's a few more floating about with addiction problems or they're doing what they're doing but nothing good come out of it you know so in, ter- in terms of your leg for example because obviously looking at you now you wouldn't really know what of course been not. in your past but is no. that like the if major if I show you my leg now look yeah you can mm. see all the scars on it and that yeah exactly. you know I still dress it every day um, I've been cleaning 11 years 4 months but you know I've got, I'm on medication the rest of my life my legs swell up, they're jet black, you know, uh, they give me a bit of pain. I have good days, bad days with them, really. You know, I've got to be careful with my medication because I've got 12 blood clots in my legs and uh, DVTs from injecting for so many years with the big needles. So I have to be careful that I don't, then blood clots can't go to my brain or have a stroke. So um, I'm all right, you know, I'm, 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 I'm pretty fit and healthy. Apart from everything else, you know, I'm, uh, I go down to the gym now, keep myself, myself, I pay my bills, I pay my taxes. And on the flip side of all my past, I turned it into a positive for the future, for kids. And as you know, I work with lots of young people today. Um, I got a lot of rejection at first, and I still get rejection today. People not allowing me to go in and speak to the kids in their care. But, lucky enough, over the past seven years, I think I've spoken to 400,000 children about the choice they're going to make, like I did, and are they willing to take it, and it is possible for them... I don't care where they're from, 
whether they're rich or poor, black or white, what religion they believe in, what happened to me can happen to any person. Going back to sort of this gang thing, and that is one of the most striking things I think about this, is that okay. like, three of the guys that you run a gang with are now no longer here. Yeah. And you know, there's mental health problems there. Yeah. And there's, I think one guy is in jail at the moment Still. for, for yeah. stabbing someone else. Yeah, it's, 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 it, I just said, it, 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 there, there was nothing, no, no, none, of, none of us come out of it without there being a major consequence. And some of the consequences were fatal, mm-hmm. death, you know, overdoses from heroin. You say you obviously rose to this gang leader. What do you have to do to gain that level of respect and reach in a that gang? level? Mm-hmm. And the fact that really, I mean, because I said I was one of the gang leaders, don't mean to say you're the toughest in the gang. There are boys in my gang that are giants, you know, six foot four, 18, 19, 20 stone. So I wasn't, in fact, the toughest of my gang members. I was probably the most trusted and most popular. So it's sort of like, in terms of when we used to rob all the stuff from where we robbed it, yeah, I was I was responsible for dealing with all selling it and holding the money and that you know, so I was very trusted. You know, we all had a little role to play in the gang, but you know, you think at the age of like nineteen, you know, I've got a gold Rolex on my wrist. You know, I've got Living a three bedroom house. I've got a personal driver. You know, I'm running around. I'm immaculate. You know, I'm a big lad myself. You know, at this age. And I just guess I got a lot of respect from the rest of my gang. I mean, it was all there for each other. If it kicked off and there was a fight of another gang, within five minutes, we'd be ten-handed and the guns would be dug up and we'd be out, you know, doing what we do. Yeah. And when you're, you're losing all this weight through the heroin... Oh, no, my gang found out. They, they didn't want nothing to do with me. Is that, is that, that's what I was yeah. going to ask. Are you just then dumped aside when no, you No, I didn't like want to go out of them no more. Mm-hmm. They started to get suspicious. And there's one, you know, they're saying, you're coming out Saturday night. Why aren't you coming out? I said, oh, you know, I'm out, not well. I wasn't. I was in a crack then. But there's one thing you can't hide is the weight I was losing. And see my gang, right? Yeah, they hated heroin addicts, right? Like I did. And I remember one day walking down the road outside a pub. Um, and all of a sudden, I've heard running footsteps behind me. And I was with another drug addict. And it was three of my gang members. And they come up and they pummeled this other crackhead. Knocked him out, punched him. And walked off and didn't say, didn't say nothing to me. Left me. Because they were so frustrated, the fact that I'd become this 17, 18 stone gang leader to this 10 stone crackhead. They blamed every addict they see and thought it was their fault. So any addicts with me at any time, they wanted to beat them up because they blamed them. So in the end, all these addicts were in about, you know, don't hang about with Paul Hannaford because if his old gang members see you, they beat you up. And then I was on my own all the time, you know. Because addicts stick with addicts, yeah. so I'm a loner at this point. So you, yeah, and you got these new group of people that you're just yeah, I got, with, but you look, don't really look, know. I them. could I could turn up, you know, when you phone up a drug dealer, and he says, "Well, I'll meet you at four o'clock outside, say I don't know, a little sweet shop." He ain't gonna be there till five. You know why that is? Because he's waiting for loads of other drug addicts to call him, and he sends them all to the one sweet shop. So now he's got. So all of a sudden, you're standing on the corner, and there's like another six, seven addicts. So what he's doing is, for him, it's like less risk, more money, one place, instead of going all over the gaff. And then I'd scuttle off to some crack den and start injecting myself all night and wake up on some crackhead sofa. And then the next day I'd be in another town, robbing, go to another street corner, meet another drug dealer, and then go to another flat. Do you know what? I could possibly live in 10 different crack dens in the space of 10 days. And over that 10 days, I wouldn't have washed, brushed my teeth. My legs would be stinking rotten. And the only way I used to dress my legs with nappies because I didn't have the facilities to clean them properly with bandages. I wouldn't go to the hospital or a clinic or a, or a doctor's surgery. 
So what I used to do was, and in most of the crackdowns I went to, there's no hot water. And we've got memories, at night, the blood used to dry in the nappies. So when I ripped the nappy off next morning off my leg, chunks of skin as thick as, like, you know, your finger are coming off with the nappy. And you can see all the bone and the muscle under the rotten flesh. And I mean, this ain't no little hole. This was from the top of my knee down to the bottom of my ankle. You know, this is massive. Exactly. I've still got my legs, I'll never know. You know? How hard a process is it then when you're going through rehab to get yourself off that no, and it's get terrible. yourself clean? You know, when I was in rehab, I had to obviously withdraw. I mean, I withdrew in the hospital, I mean, like from the heroin with methadone. But when I got to rehab, I still had major, major problems with my health. You know, I was having my legs dressed. The nurse was coming to the rehab to dress my legs every day. They were rotten, stinking. And they're still going to cut them off, you know. But I still had loads of treatment. I had about 20 skin grafts in the end. And I was in that hospital for ages after rehab. You know, I'm, you know, looking at that all these years later, uh, you know, 11, three months clean, I've still not physically recovered properly from my past. You know, and that's like 11, 11 years, three months later. I've not drank any alcohol for 11 years, three months. But... On the flip side of everything else, at the age of 48, I'm probably best conditioned of my life. Physically, mentally, emotionally. You know, I'm not saying I have mental health problems. Obviously, I suffer probably with depression because of drugs. But, you know, I'm in the best condition of my life today. And the reason that is because I talk about my past a lot. I engage with others with similar pasts to mine and go to these meetings and meet other addicts. And, you know, it's good to talk. And that's a bit of a cliche, but it is. Yeah. The thing I ever did was, was, was emotionally talk about how I feel to other people yeah and you've obviously alluded to it there because obviously now you go around football clubs schools talking oh, yeah, about your life when did that become what you wanted to do well I just see the carnage on the streets and I looked and I thought I knew what was going on I knew that there was one headmaster in the school or there was one teacher that wasn't allowing the likes of me to go into a school and I was thinking to myself how have these people how have these middle class people teachers who have got no experience of drugs, knife crime, gangs, alcoholism, stopping 1,000 kids in a school getting into education. What is it? Just maths and English are far more important than them gang carrying knives. Is maths and English far more important than them having a maths lesson or, or, or you know, being on school on time? As I said to you earlier, you know, schools are quick enough to find parents for kids' lack of attendance, or maybe parents should be finding schools for lack of drug and knife crime awareness. Exactly. Seems fair, doesn't it? Obviously, knife crime is it's talked about hugely now. I mean, even as we record, the news is dominated by a death in London last night. And you just look at our website and there's, there's stabbings, there's gun crime. What, how bad is the problem and Massive. where does the problem lie? The problem, the problem will never stop. Never. You, the police are powerless. No disrespect to the police, right? Yeah, I'll do talks with the police now, yeah, as you'll see on my Twitter Instagram. The police have been cut. Funding's been cut. Officers been cut. You know, and if you, if you had an extra 10 police officers in every borough, you still, they're still not going to find, you know, all the knives and guns on the streets today. And most knife crime, gun crime, right, yeah, is gang or drug related. So if we can steer as many kids as possible away, away from drugs and gangs, it's very unlikely they'll ever get involved with any criminality. You know, drugs are, right, the foundation of chaos on our streets. If there was no drugs, I would never have done nothing of what I did. I'd never gone to prison 15 times. I'd never have done robbed all the dealers. I'd never have got involved with stabbings, been stabbed seven times myself. You know, none of that stuff would never happened. 
you know, and I go to prisons now as well as schools. I mean, I speak to about 60,000 kids a year. I go to primary schools and, you know, all over the country, private schools, boarding schools. You know, I've even been to Ireland, Scotland, Wales, like all over. I've even been invited to America if I'm not sure if I'm allowed in the country. But, and when I go to prisons, when I go to many young offenders and I speak to these boys, age 15 to 18, 70% are in for drug-related crime. That tells you one thing, that 70% of all crime is drug-related. Any police officer tell you that. So we look at the basics then of how do we stabilise or reduce this stuff in our communities, more drug awareness. Is that, is that kind of what you're setting yourself out as your yeah. mission, is to get those kids while they're still young enough yeah, and just ten. let them know what the consequences are? I do these workshops be. with year three, seven-year-olds. And people say, is that too young? No, it's not. You know why? Because that might be the only talk they ever get because there's a 90% chance the secondary school they attend won't bother. Exactly. 90% chance. I've done my research, eight years. Yeah? Academics, academics, academics. Come 3 p.m., goodbye. Make sure you're in school at 9 o'clock tomorrow. Is yeah. that something that really needs to change? Is their duty past 3 p.m.? We need to uh, maybe, uh, not we, but there needs to be someone vetting schools. Uh, an Ofsted, a spin-off from Ofsted, that are going round, and the first question they ask when they walk into a school is, have you given your kids a workshop yet around drugs, gangs, alcohol, knife crime? And the answer will probably be, no, not yet. <laughs> Why not? But then when? Yeah, yet. All this madness we see morning, noon and night on TV, right? And these kids killing each other in our streets. And yet, we've got, I follow many people on Twitter who work with kids. And there are some doing some wonderful things. But that's some. 10%. 90% of the people I follow on social media, teachers, schools, cricket, football projects, are doing nothing. In terms of the response you're getting from these kids that you're talking to, is it overwhelmingly positive? Look, look. You know, the police now pick me up and take me to schools. And as you know, you know, I committed 5,000 crimes. I just hate the police, right? But I grew up in there and I know we need police now, yeah? They do, they do a good job. I hated school and now I go to schools every day. You know, I've got some of the biggest football clubs, I guess. You know, and I work with London Fire Brigade, the police, air ambulance. These people obviously are seeing that there's value in me. Why? Because they look at my social media platform, Instagram or Twitter, and they see the hundreds of messages I get daily from kids when I go to a school. And they know that their money and time's been well spent. You know, this ain't no maths lesson. This ain't a lesson in, like, you know, academics. It's a lesson in future. And the last thing I want to do is, as I said, is, 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 or any teacher should do, is walk past the shop and see a kid outside there, a teenager, with their hand out begging because they're addicted to crack. Was there a missed opportunity? Should that, should, that, should that young person that's outside that shop with no teeth, injecting drugs every day, be in work, having a bright, decent future, paying bills? spending Christmas with their family if anyone's listening to this and you work with kids and you and your colleagues because some people don't have the power to invite people in like me it's normally a senior leader but if someone that's in a position to give the kids workshops or get someone in they don't bother then they're in the wrong job they should hold red in shame because why you know what I thought, I thought there's me thinking everyone that worked with kids were passionate about their, their welfare well that's clearly not the case is it Exactly. And you mentioned um, talking to inmates as well, because I yeah. think you were in Chelmsford Prison pretty recently. I was in Chelmsford too. Prison three, four weeks ago with Chelsea mm. Football Club on a, uh, on a, um, it's like a uh, resettlement program. They do, and Chelsea do some great stuff in, in prisons, and it's about reducing reoffending. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure these boys get out of prison and stay out of prison, 
and stay out for the right reason. Not the fact not getting caught, but start behaving themselves and go back and get into college, go work. But you can't blame half of them. Most of them are for drug dealing. They're only in boxes of money. And they're going to come out and start working, you know, for six, seven pound an hour when they come out a grand a day. You know, I'm not saying they all do that, but that's what drug dealers earn. I suppose you can see why it's hard for them well, to suddenly turn not. away from that. Of course, but mm-hmm. I say to them, look, you know, you, you know, you're going to be looking over your shoulder for the rest of your life. Your door's going to be coming through eventually. You get the same judge that sent you to prison before. You know, you're going to get more. So what we're trying to say is, is that you know we just need to obviously try and you know hopefully when they get out they realise that you know what do they want? A bit of peace, go to college, study for a little while. All right, you might be you know not have as much money as you was, but at least you'll have a bit of peace of mind. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in terms of the stuff that you're doing now, is there a sense that you're making up for lost time and what you lost as a youngster? I think so. I think I'm very fortunate today to have a good job. You know, I do a lot of work, paid work, voluntary work. You know, I just, I, 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 I never turn a job down. In my borough where I was brought up in Havering, all the schools uh, I do that do invite me, not all of them do invite me, but the ones that do, I do it for free. I believe I need to, um, you know, put something back. But... Um, yeah, I like what I do. It's tiring, a lot of travelling, a lot of talking. You know, I travel all over. But on the flip side of all of that, the job satisfaction's great. You know, um, will I be doing this in 10 years? I don't know. Will I be abroad in 10 years doing it? I don't know. All I know is is that I'm getting busier every year. I've got a big portfolio. I do know that uh, if I email 100 schools right now in front of you and then shows you in a week's time how many got back to me, be lucky if one got back to me. You know, that's, 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 that's what we're dealing with. Because these people are just saying that, you know, we just don't need this stuff. And you look and they think, they must watch the news. They must know what's going on. You could have a billion pound funding. You're still going to get a lot of resistance from these headmasters. Who are totally, I'm not disrespecting them. You know, probably do a fabulous job academically. And they probably, you know, create some bright futures. But... To allow someone to go into their school for one day and speak to all the kids, yeah, right, it's fantastic. If I don't do it, then you've got to look and think, well, do you really care about them? Are you in the right job? You know, what's it all about? You know, why, what, you know, do you not see this stuff on the media? I don't know, it just baffles me. Now, someone would want to work with kids and not give them a workshop around what's going on in the world. It just baffles me. And trust me, there are a lot more that are saying no than are saying yes. Yeah. I've done my research. Eight years of research I've done, right? And lucky enough now, in the eight years, I've built like a portfolio where it's probably 80% of my work's repeat work. So schools re-invite me back every year. I get 20% new work. Um, but you've got a new generation coming through. Every year, you know, you've got a new year group coming into secondary school. You know, so, as I said, it's just, uh, let's do something rather than do nothing. And the problem we've got is too many people are doing nothing. I would like to take more to a crack then for a day and show them how young crackheads live young crackheads that are once at school and that'll wake them up needles in cots and blood everywhere and carnage you know but obviously because I've experienced it I guess I'm a bit more passionate than the average teacher about this stuff I'm not a teacher that's passionate about academics because they studied it they've got a degree in it yeah well I've got a degree in, in street I've got a PhD in street you know and, and with that we better wrap up this that's episode right. of the well, podcast look, that I hope yeah. whoever does listen to this if you uh, you know, if you do work with kids, have a little think next time you see them and ask yourself, you know, am I doing my job properly? 
you know, is it possible for me to get in? I mean, I've got my website, paulhannaford.com. I've got my Instagram, Twitter, at Paul Hannaford. There's enough evidence on there to tell you that, you know, if, 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 if you get me in, I will change some of your kids' lives. Exactly. And I just want to say as well, like, your story is it's obviously harsh, it's carnage, but yeah. I think it's great that you're going around explaining to them just how Yeah. Horrible. I haven't got no magic wand. Exactly. Right? A few wise words may save a life. Exactly. And that, that's all you can do right now. You're welcome. And I think that's a, a top work that you're doing right now. And thank you so much for being the guest on this podcast. That's, a, that's really welcome. Follow Essex Live on Facebook, Twitter and on Instagram. Or go to our website, EssexLive.com. Dot news. Ik vind een punt van TGB, stiekem meer dan genoeg. Niet omdat het moet. Nu 2 gig data met een 0 minuten bel- en sms-bundel voor maar 9 euro per maand. Omdat het kan. Check tele2.nl voor de beste deal voor jou. Niet omdat het moet, maar omdat het kan.